For today's sermon, there's a handout in your bulletin with some blanks you can be filling in. I will uh, make sure that those are going to be up on the screen, so you'll be able to get all the uh, blanks filled in. This, uh, I've been excited about this sermon. I've been wanting to preach this topic uh, for, a, for a little while now, but I realized as I was writing this sermon that really this needs to be a series. I don't know, sometimes happens to me, and we're not doing a series, we're doing one, so here we go, we're jumping in. Um, I'm going to be uh, using a number of different scriptures throughout. You might want to jot those down. You can look them up later. The question for today is really, what is the gospel? What does the gospel mean? The Greek word euangelion is the word we get evangelical or evangelism. In Old English, it was gospel, good news. The word euangelion in the, in the Greek is actually a term the Romans would use. Whenever Rome would conquer a new area, they would come to every town in the, in the whole Roman Empire and say, Hey, good news, we conquered somebody else. Good news, we wiped out another enemy. Good news, that part, those people are no longer going to be a threat and we have withstood our power. And for the Bible then to take this word that was a Roman conquering term and say, no, 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 you think that's good news. I've got much better news for you. But what is this gospel? For many of us, we would simply say that Jesus died on the cross for our sin. And yet there's more to it. For some, that even sounds like bad news when they say it. Have you ever talked to those people? You are a dirty, rotten, terrible, no good sinner. But guess what? Jesus died for you. And you think, that doesn't sound like really good news. That sounds like terrible news. I'm a terrible person. For some people, it is a gospel of grace that sounds a lot more like good news, but has no trouble in it. For others, it's a social gospel to save the world, protect creation, justice for the poor and for the downtrodden. For many, the social gospel is the gospel. For others still, you can find on TV what we would call a prosperity gospel, which says, hey, I've got good news for you. God wants you to be wealthy and happy and uh, get everything you want in life. If you would just feel a certain way, then you would get all those things. So what is the gospel? What is the good news? And I want to say that the good news needs to answer some big questions. The human questions of who is God? Who are we? Why are we here? What does it mean to flourish and have a good life on earth? And I think the church is really struggling because we fight over a common, we don't have a common understanding of what the gospel is. And so I want to try to spell out a full, robust, big picture story of what the gospel is. And I think the best way to say that is in four chapters. A four chapter gospel of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And so today I want to spell this out for you. Go ahead, next. The first one, the first chapter is the only the, the first couple of chapters of the Bible, but it unpacks the whole thing for us in the rest of the Bible. It is the story of creation, the way things were. We get a lot of debate about creation and what was it, six days, was it evolution, how do we figure all this out? But really the point of the text is held right there in, in verse 1. It says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. How we did it I think is up for some discussion, but what we do know is that God made it. 
It comes from God's hand and it belongs to God. And what does he do? It's a very interesting pattern. He orders and he fills. Go back and read Genesis 1 again. He creates and finds order. He separates and then he fills. So on day one, God creates um, the, the skies and um, the, the earth. So he sort of separates, right? And then what you find on day four is that God makes the stars and the heavenly bodies. And then on day two, God creates the skies above and the waters below. And if you go to day five, then God fills those things, the birds and the fish. On day three, God separates the land from the water. And, And then on day six, God fills the land. See, he orders and he fills. He orders and he fills. This is exactly what human beings do, by the way. You have this crazy thing called a backyard. And you try to bring order and fill that. So first you mow. And then you you till the ground and you plant a garden. And then you have to pull out all these weeds, right? You're ordering, you're filling. That's the same thing an accountant does, by the way. Takes all these numbers, all this information, and he orders them or she orders them and, and then fills them. Figures out how the orders are supposed to go. If you're a teacher, it's the same thing. You get this crazy bunch of second graders, right? And it's a chaotic mess. You bring order to that mess, and then you fill the mess with information, right? Order and fill. Any job that you do in this world, you order and you fill because you're made in the image of God. And what does God say about all this? It was good. It was good. It was good. The whole time, it was good. It was good. And then at the very end of Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, it says that God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. See, we have this false interpretation that says there are certain things in this world that are good. There are certain things that are good in this world that are not good, right? Like, how many of you grew up in a family where playing cards was bad? You didn't play cards because God did not play cards, right? You didn't go to the movies because movies are bad. But the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says everything is good in this world. But as we're going to see, it doesn't stay that way. Everything gets corrupt. That means music is good and some music can be used for bad purposes, But music is good and all kinds of music is good. What does Psalm 24 says? The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Everything is the Lord's. So God puts human beings in the middle of this creation and gives them a mandate. Let us make man in our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens. So God created them. And then chapter 1 verse 28 He says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Then have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Be fruitful and multiply. See, God wants us to continue his work of creating. You understand that? God makes the world, he makes it good, and then he puts human beings and he says, hey, keep creating Keep naming stuff and figuring stuff out. Keep ordering and filling. Keep having kids and keep making this world. When you go to work, you are doing holy things. Because whatever you're creating, whether it's a spreadsheet, whether it's a classroom, whatever you're doing, you are, when you are spending time with your grandkids and you're pouring into them, guess what? That is holy work. Because you are, you are doing what God intended for you to do. But God also said you couldn't do it all. And he modeled this idea of rest for us. And doesn't that just stink? Anybody that stinks? Right? 
I wish I didn't run out of energy and get tired at the end of the day or at the end of the week. I always feel like there's more I should do. But you understand, before the fall, before sin enters the world, there's a need for rest. There's a limitation. You can't do it all. You can't do it all. So you better do the things that are most important to God, the things that really fulfill your purpose in God. This is the way that things were. Next, though, we get the fall. This is the way that things are. Something happens to this creation because it doesn't look as good as what God made it to begin with. The first temptation is to be like God. Here's what the serpent says to the woman in chapter 3, verse 4. Genesis 3, 4. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. That's the temptation. To be like God. To take the place of God at the center of this universe. To see our creation as more important than God's creation. Instead of seeing us as playing a part in His image. Instantly when we have this fall, we have this temptation and fall, we get a sense of shame. There's hiding. Because there's this separation between God and humanity. There's this gap all of a sudden. We know that we're not like God. So when God comes walking through the garden in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve are hiding. And God says, well, why are you hiding? And they said, because we were naked. And God said, who told you you were naked? You weren't supposed to know that yet. I think God always intended to help people grow, grow and slowly grow into a knowledge of good and evil. It's like my kids. I don't want to tell them about all the evil in the world yet, right? They're going to know about a lot of that. And a lot of us have had lives where we've learned about a lot of that. But it takes time. Adam and Eve get it instantly. And so there's shame. They feel shame. They shame each other and blame each other in the conversation. And so there's not just this gap between God and humanity. There's this gap that happens between you and I. So God curses the labor. And there's a double meaning there. And it's still preserved in our English language. Okay, there's two meanings of the word labor, right? Okay, there's two little babies back there. Two little babies back there. And I I know how that happened. Their mom went into labor, right? There's labor in childbirth, but there's also labor in the work (coughs) that you do. And when you read the curse in Genesis 3, what you find is that both kinds of labor to fill and multiply for the earth, there's a struggle with. Here's what God says to Adam in verse 17. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles shall bring forth for you. See, we're supposed to do this work on earth. We're supposed to continue creating. But it's broken. You go to make a garden in your backyard, what do you get? Weeds. There are weeds there. And next week there's going to be more weeds. And I have to go to work and I have to do something. But guess what? I'm tired. I don't feel motivated to work. Right? And there's obstacles in my way. The world is broken somehow that makes our work in the image of God so much harder. Right? Somebody out there is a builder. And what what do you find? There's something wrong with every project. Right? Every project, something doesn't go right. Because our labor is somehow broken 
because of this world, our mandate that we have to continue creating doesn't work the way it should. And it's not just us. It's corporate. In the next chapter of the Bible, Cain kills Abel. By chapter 6, people are so bad, God sends a flood. Then there's the Tower of Babel. It gets worse and worse and worse. So much so that the Psalms tell us creation groans because of how wrong the world feels. And we have these little things that Paul will call sinful natures. We're naturally bent towards sin. It's just how we are. And if you don't believe me, have kids. Okay? I never had to teach my kids how to lie. They figured that all out on their own. It was that one. Okay? I had a cousin who, who um, wrote on the back of the seat on, at the bus on the, on the way to school. Except he wrote his full name. My cousin wrote his first and last name so they knew exactly who did it. Okay? He was just a little kid and he was not very good at sinning yet, but he knew what to do. Okay, he knew what to do. We have sinful natures. And so we try to make ourselves God. We try to give ourselves to things in this world. We have despair, sadness, grief, anger, broken relationship, not just with God, but with each other, with our children, with our grandchildren, with our parents, with our coworkers. We work to avoid shame and we shame others. What will happen with this problem of the fall? Chapter 3, redemption. The way things could be. See, humanity couldn't save itself. That's the whole Old Testament. God gives a promised land. He gives Moses. He gives a temple. He gives prophets. He gives kings. Earlier, he gives judges. All these. And you know what people keep doing? Sinning. They keep sinning. They keep going back to this sin stuff. Paul says in Romans chapter 3, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. That's our natural inclination. We cannot save ourselves. So, what does God do? In the Old Testament, they're already looking forward to God doing something to fix this fall problem. And we get Jesus. Now, we always talk about the cross, but we got to get the whole gospel, the whole story here. The first thing Jesus does, we're going to celebrate at Christmas, is Jesus becomes flesh. And when he becomes flesh, it's so important because he is fully human and fully divine. So there was this gap between God and humanity. But you know what Jesus does? When he's born, he heals it in himself. Already as a baby in that manger, he is fully God, fully human. The healing work between God and humanity has begun. He lives the perfect life, the life that we could never live. He's kind and he's caring. He teaches a different way to live, a kingdom that works differently. And then at the fullness of time, he dies on a cross. The death that we deserve. Because all this sin, everything that's fallen in this world has to be paid for. There has to be an accounting for it. And yet Jesus accounts for it on himself. Not because we're so good. Because Paul says in Romans 5, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He gave gave himself for us. So there's this great trade that happens. See, he lives the life we couldn't live. He dies the death we deserve. And we get his perfect life. And we get his sacrifice. We trade with him. And then we get probably 
the least appreciated of Jesus, the least appreciated part of Jesus' life that I think is way underappreciated, and that's his ascension. There's this moment where Jesus goes back to be with the Father, and we don't think of that as saving, but, but that is the moment where the Father accepts Jesus' sacrifice and says, yep, that was good for me. Here you go, come on home, because if we're exchanging with Christ, then we get that too, you understand? We're adopted as sons and daughters. And so when we get to heaven, we're going to get that same, yep, come on over. It is the exclamation point at the end of it is finished. Okay? And he doesn't stay dead. The resurrection is so important in the step there. He doesn't stay dead. He defeats death and gives us life. That is... The redemption of Jesus. Here we go, chapter 4 then. The restoration explains the way things will be. Because here's the problem. The problem is we've got, a, we've got a, a sin problem that's been paid for by Jesus. And yet, when you go out to your garden next spring, you're going to find weeds again. Right? And when you go to work this week, it's not going to be perfect anymore. Right? There's going to be injustice in this world. And it's not going to be the way it should be. And so the, the theologians have talked about how the gospel is now and not yet. Meaning it's already won, it's already paid for for us, and yet someday there's going to be this final move. Okay? This final, we've already got checkmate, but someday the king is actually going to come. But actually someday all things are going to be made new. Revelation 21 says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain. For former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. It's important to know that there's a couple different words in Greek for new. One means like brain spanking new. The other one means really renew or restore. And that's the word that's really being used here. And that's the word that primarily Paul uses when he talks about how we get new bodies and we get new life. Because listen, we don't need a new world. God made a good world. It got fallen, but he's going to come and make it better. He made it good and it was corrupted, but now it's paid for and he's going to be made new again. God doesn't make junk. And for Paul, this is so important. You go back and read 1 Corinthians 15 because Paul says this about your body. Guess what? How many of you feel the effects of sin in your body? Right? When your back doesn't feel good in the morning. I really felt it this week. I've got like this sinus thing going. Anybody got that? If not, it's coming for you. It's around now, okay? And then I was working in my backyard. I was doing some labor, right? And I was taking down this old swing set in the backyard and uh, I was holding it up with something and it came off 
uh, it was a ratchet strap came off and hit me right in the head right here. And that's why I have these two little because it was all glued earlier. It was it was awesome. Um, I got hit in the head. I got a sinus drainage. I got a back that's sore from doing all that work trying to cut that thing apart. Anybody feel in their body the effects of the fall just a little bit? But, but Paul says God doesn't make junk. So your body's going to be made new. You don't just get a new body. Your body is made new. Everything about sin is undone in the end. So injustices are made right. Pain is wiped away. Tears are no more. And we as Christians stand in between the the payment of that and the someday hope of that. Not only that, but God has a greater, fuller purpose for creation. So that the work we do in this world is not for nothing. We are continuing, not to force God to come back, but to continue to make this world look more like what God intended it to look like in the beginning. Our labor is not in vain, for a new world is to to come. And so we continue the work of God. So when you go to work this week, you are doing holy work. When you're with your grandkids this week, you are doing holy work. And when you're talking to your neighbor outside, you're doing holy work. And when you're cleaning up your house, it doesn't feel like it, but it's holy work. Because you are continuing to bring order and creativity and wholeness to a world that you know is broken, but you know someday will not be. See how much bigger this picture of the gospel is when you sort of put it all together? Spike, click one more. There we go. There's the whole thing. This four-chapter gospel that I think we so desperately need. And here's what I find. A lot of Christians don't have all four. Most Christians only have two of these chapters. Most Christians that are more liberal have chapter one and chapter four. They care very much about creation. They care very much about justice. They care very much about this world. But they don't have a sense of how fallen their work is in trying to fix that or how much they need Jesus to fix that. For many conservatives, it's the middle two. We have this sense that, yes, we are sinners. Yes, Jesus died for us. But we don't have the same sense about creation and about the world and about the coming world. It's like we have our ticket punched to heaven and there we go. There's our faith. But see, both understandings of Christianity that lack the other two chapters are very truncated and very unwhole. For more of that liberal, those people who have just chapter one and just chapter four, it ends up that we're saving the world, not Jesus saving the world. They don't understand or appreciate how fallen their attempts are. How do they get to pick how they're just, what is just and not just when they're fallen? How do they understand or appreciate the sacrifice of Jesus? There's almost no need for Jesus to go to a cross for many Christians. They have trouble balancing fighting for justice with offering grace. They can offer grace to some people, but to those who are really fallen or who are cruel to other people, there's no grace. There's no tolerance. There's no love for those who disagree. For many conservatives and evangelicals who only have number two and number three chapters, they don't, they don't seem to care about the world. They don't seem to appreciate the beauty of the world or our work in it. They miss the full destiny of Christianity in the church because they're so narrowly focused on individual salvation rather than the whole world. And both sides 
tend to be proud about it because at least they figured it out. You know what we need? We need a more full, robust story of this, of this good news. It's not just good news. It is great news when you understand it. And it is not just good news that, that works for an hour on Sunday morning. It is good news for every part of your life. We need a full and robust understanding of the gospel to show us how to live, why we struggle, why we work, and to give us a compelling picture of what life can look like. So I hope that you will wrestle with a four-chapter gospel. Let me pray. Father God, I thank you for your work in our lives, for this full picture. Help us to appreciate not just your saving work of Jesus on the cross, central as that is, but let us work that out into other areas of our lives that we may see that the earth is in it. The earth and everything in it is yours. And that includes us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.